0: Gonna get an amen. Um, All right, so we are continuing our series, and uh, if you're new here, don't know what we're talking about, we're doing a series called Status. It's on relationships. There's a way for you guys to ask questions in the series. There's a, there was a table in the back. It's now over there, and it moved. Like my my thing got messed up here. So there was a basket back there. Now it's over there, and the table's over there. And uh, But we'll figure that part out. But you can write down a question, put it on a card, put it in the basket, and we pick those up weekly, and we'll save those for the Q&A panel at the end of the series. Um, any question you're thinking through or struggling through, this is a totally anonymous. way for you to turn in a question. Now today, um, this might be a long talk as well, and uh, so I have, I've made questions for discussion, but I'm not sure we're going to get to discussion today, just so you know. Um, we may actually go the entire time with the talk. Um, plus, I just know that, like, going, talking about, like, sexuality and then having a breakout discussion, that can just get awkward, right? It, it's just, it can just turn awkward. Like, that's just what can happen. So we're going to see how this goes, and we'll see if we have time for breakouts. But we might not as well. So we've, been, we've spent nine weeks talking about the male-female relationship. But last week and today, we were focusing on the relationship between Christianity and sexuality, and their relationship status is a little complicated and has been for a long time. So last week, we looked at how many church fathers held really messed up views on sexuality. We also talked about God's purpose for sex. We said it was procreation. We said it was restoration and also sanctification. You guys can go to the podcast, listen to that talk if you weren't here last week. We also discussed why anything sexual is reserved for marriage only. We said if it's to restore and to renew the covenant, then it cannot serve that function if there is no covenant. So we covered that last week. And today we're looking at how the brokenness of sin taints our sexuality, but also how God offers us redemption through the gospel. So we're going to look at, um, turn to Romans chapter 1. And we looked at this passage last week. We're going to cover this again real quick, really quickly. Romans one twenty, and that, the, the, the verses that follow are a great section to look at to see how we fall into any kind of sin, temptation, and idolatry. Romans one twenty says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So last week we said that everything created tells us something about the Creator. And yes, this is true even of our sexuality. But what often happens with us, instead of allowing the creation to point us to the Creator, we allow creation to replace the Creator. And this exchange happens, as Romans, Romans 1.20 is talking about, where we, instead of looking to God Himself and just seeing the things He's made as a gift and a blessing to us, we take the gift and begin to worship the gift and forget about the one who gave us the gift. And we do this with most things, and this is especially true as it relates to sexuality. Look on with me at verses 21 to 23, where it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, these verses don't talk about sexuality directly, but I want you to see the pattern of how you and I fall into any sin. This is true of any sin that we fall into. So it says, for although they knew God, so that's not talking about someone with a real relationship with God. It's talking about someone who says, yeah, I believe that God exists I believe there's a God out there somewhere. I believe in some kind of deity. Maybe he's distant. Maybe he doesn't really care about us. Maybe he's just out there somewhere, and, and we, really, we can't really know this God. So there are lots of people that, that say, I believe God or I believe that he exists, but believing that God is out there somewhere is different than obeying that God and honoring that God as God. So watch what happens when someone does this. When someone re- refuses to honor God and give thanks to God, it talks about two things. It affects how somebody thinks. It also affects their heart, and it says their heart becomes darkened. We become blind to the truth even when the truth is right in front of us. So somebody can think that God's out there somewhere, have a vague, they might call it faith. I wouldn't call it faith. They might call it faith. Yeah, I believe God exists, but that doesn't really mean that they have a relationship with him, or that they're, that they're obeying him, or honoring him as God. Then it says here, this statement, claiming to be wise, they became fools. I think we see this happening today in our world where there is a wisdom that the world offers us. And if you look at our culture, the media, movies, it's all put before you that this is the new wisdom. This is what it means to be wise, and if you don't, as, if you don't adopt certain viewpoints that as our culture puts them before us, if you don't see sexuality how our how our, world, how our world sees it, well, that means you're not you're not enlightened. You're not wise as they define it. You don't see things as our culture claims them to be. So the exact thing that Paul's writing about in the first century is the same thing you see happening today. There is a wisdom that's being put forth by our culture and. And it's being put in front of Christians to say, if you don't believe this, well, you're not compassionate. You can't be someone who is a virtuous person or a good person because um, you don't see things the way that we think they should be, how they should be perceived. So this leads to an exchange that Romans 1 is talking about. We take good gifts from God and we turn them into God. And Paul is saying this happens for unbelievers, but we all fall into this trap. We all fall into this trap. Now, sexuality might be one of the most obvious ways in which we do this. You see, God has given it to us as a gift, but we have a way of turning it into God, worship, worshiping at the altar of our sexuality. And so as we chase our idols, there's no question that we are trying to satisfy some deep longings that only God can fulfill. So I want to talk to you real quickly about A couple of longings that are are true and good longings that I think God has placed within us. And these are good things. God's given us these desires from, really almost from birth. But here's what I want you to hear. Our sexuality says something about God. It says that he created us for intimacy. It also says he created us for covenant. That means a relationship based on a promise. So this means... If, if, I sur- if I surveyed this room asking each of you what you prefer, a future with one person for a lifetime or a lifetime of broken relationships, I think almost all of you would pick one person for a lifetime. I really believe that. Because we are wired for intimacy. but We're also wired for covenant, which is a relationship based on a promise. It's true of our relationship with God. It's also true of our relationship with that special other person. So even whenever we walk into sexual sin, I think this is the thing that most of us are looking for. You are looking, in a sense, even in your sinful desire, sinful struggle, you are looking for intimacy, and you are, in some sense, looking for covenant. But when you go around God's will, subvert His will, and take matters into your own hands, it's impossible to have those things the way God intended for you to have them. And I think you have to understand there is a true and good longing that's happening in you, even when you walk off into sin in some of these areas in your life. You know, at a young age, I think even young kids show that they're thinking about the future, like the male-female relationship, like down the road. Reminded of a story. One time I was at a wedding of a former intern of mine many years ago. And I forget how old Landon was, my son. But um, it was interesting because during... I think it was like one of the first weddings he ever attended with me, and you know, it's funny whenever your kids are at that age, because they don't know how to really whisper very well. They do what I call, they whisper, yell, and, and so that's kind of, he kind of whisper yelled something into my ear, and we're like in the middle of a wedding, it's really quiet, it's a real solemn moment, a quiet part of the wedding ceremony, and we're toward the back of this church up in Waco, and he just goes, he's just like, Daddy, and I'm like, what keep it down what what do you want to say to your dad you know and he can't really break it down so he whisper yells this question to me he says he says daddy when I meet my wife one day how will I know how to get to her house it was like he thinks someone just assigns you a wife or like you win her in a raffle or something like like, he just thinks, like, someone's going to say, hey, 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 Landon, this is your wife. And he's like, okay, well, how do I get to your house? <laughs> like, that's how he thinks it goes down. I'm like, that's not really, there's a bunch of other questions we need to answer first, okay? Just table that for later. And then recently, my, well, not so recent, my, my daughter, Sienna, I think she was, I forget what age she was when she said this. But we're sitting at dinner, and she's just kind of looking off into the distance like she tends to do, looking kind of dreamy gets that dreamy look on her face, and I just said, hey, Sienna, so what have you been thinking about lately? And she goes, I just wish I knew who my husband was going to be. And I'm like, girl, you were eight. Just stop it. What are you talking about right now? And so listen, as a parent, though, it's really easy to have that response. Like, listen, you're too young. Don't be Don't don't be silly, like you're way too young for that. It's very easy for us as parents to to fall into that trap. But here's my advice to parents. So if your parents like to listen to podcasts, have them listen to this later this week. But when your teenager expresses romantic desire, here's my advice to a parent. Affirm the longing. Make sure they know, yeah, this is good. This is God-given. Like God places in you a desire for intimacy and covenant. It may not be the time for that right now. But later on, that's going to be a good godly thing. And so you've got to use wisdom. So I, I don't have, I don't advise parents just to say to their kid, like, you know, when they're young or when they're even a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior in high school, if, if your parent has the reaction just to be like, oh, just stop being silly. Come on now. Like, you're too young for that. And then just kind of, you know, like, just say, act, acting like the desire for those things is somehow wrong or evil, I would say that's probably the wrong r- response for a parent to have. Now, they need to give you wisdom. And put some parameters around things, obviously. But I think it's a wrong response to make it seem like you're wrong to have the desire. I mean, that's been placed in you by God, this desire for intimacy, a desire for covenant. And that's a good gift from God. So the worst thing a parent can do is to shame them for having these desires. And I think when a parent does that, they might actually drive their teenager into sin. That's when things can get shady, right? Where the parent just says, you know, this is, this is dumb. This is silly. That's where things can kind of go Romeo and Juliet real quick, right? Like crazy stuff starts happening, right? And so I advise parents against that. Listen, we are hardwired for these kind of longings. But they also set us up to believe some lies. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 25, where it says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The first exchange was replacing the creator with the creation. The second exchange that happens is exchanging, exchanging truth for lies. So whenever we seek to fulfill God-given desires in the ways that God did not intend, we fall for lies. And again, there might, there might be no other issue. We're more prone to this than our sexuality. So here's the first lie. Sex is nothing. We minimize it. Make it seem like it's just no big deal. If you ask people in the street, is sex a big deal or is it no big deal, most are going to say, no big deal. You know, of course, you want to avoid unwanted, un, unwanted pregnancies or diseases, you know, but we should all be free to do as we please. And, you know, consent is the only rule. You know, our culture believes that sex can be as meaningful or meaningless as you want it to be. They think they can determine and ascribe how meaningful or meaningless it should be. We can determine truth for ourselves. And so there are certain phrases that have entered our vocabulary. So things like, yeah, it's just casual. Or they call it, it's just a hookup, right? That's what our word they have used in the past for for these kinds of things. I mean, there are apps people get for this kind of stuff on their phone, of course. But just because the culture has bought this lie doesn't mean it's working out for them. There's a lady that I have, I have a book in my office, and this person is not a believer, but this lady has done a lot of writing and speaking on this topic, especially as it relates to college campuses, done lots of surveys and asking people um, how this culture that we talk about here, how it's really working out for them. And what she has found is that the people she interviews and surveys, even they would say it's not the best thing ever. Here's a couple of quotes that she has in her book. She says they're really ambivalent. That means like a love-hate relationship about the sex that they're having. According to everything they see in pop culture, They're supposed to be having this great time, but it's rare I find a young person who says, hooking up is the best thing ever. She goes on to say, in reality, it seems to empty them out. There's a sort of soullessness fostered in the hookup culture. There's a learned callousness to it. Sex is something you're not to care about. It's almost like their job just to get it done. And so what she's saying is that these people treat it just like it's this appetite, like just this hunger you're supposed to fulfill. And whenever sex is minimized in this way, and, we, and, and she says, you know, we would say saying sex is nothing, it's not a big deal, it's just casual, what happens, she's seeing how the people that are engaging in this kind of lifestyle, it really doesn't bring the kind of fulfillment and happiness they think it's going to bring them. There's this perception, and there's reality. And she's seeing reality. And so this lie... Sex is nothing. It runs into another lie, which sounds opposite and cis. Sex is everything. You see, our culture is really confused, especially right now. And and you see in our culture this, this movement between these two different lies. Sex is nothing. Sex is everything. And so where does this lie, sex is everything, where does this lie come from, and how does it play out? Well, there's this guy named Wilhelm Reich, You probably had never heard of this guy, but he was someone born in the late 1800s. He looks like a mad scientist, doesn't he? And born in the late 1800s, and he studied under Sigmund Freud, and he studied sexuality. In 1936, he wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. We think of that word being associated with the 60s and 70s. He had a book by the same name as early as 1936, and in that book, he wrote these words. I have become convinced that sexuality is the center around which revolves the whole of social life as well as the inner life of the individual. And you don't have to look very far today in our culture to see these words playing out in everything. Advertising. How people describe themselves. What they say about themselves. And they say, this is who I am. And so we see what he's he's saying here playing out in our culture today in all kinds of ways. There was a chapter in his book called The Problem with Marriage. And in it, he recommends this. He says, we should replace traditional marriage with a series of committed relationships. So it's fine just to jump from relationship to relationship to relationship throughout one's life. And so the the vows would change in a marriage ceremony. Instead of saying, till death do us part, they might say, as long as love shall last. And this was his vision for what relationships should be. Let's get rid of the old ways, and let's embrace this new way. And in his own personal life, he went from relationship to relationship to relationship, even forced someone to get an abortion. He abandoned marriages left and right. He left his kids. His life was a complete disaster. You see, something happened. His pursuit of happiness... Led to a whole bunch of sadness for other people. Do you realize when we live in a world that says, you know, go after your own happiness, but do you realize whenever you go after your happiness, you leave a trail of sadness for everybody else in that wake? It's impossible for you to live your life only for yourself and not create complete destruction. and and sadness for everyone else that's involved in your life. It's impossible to do that. And this is what this man did. He ends up in prison, dies in prison, because he believed that sex was everything. So we cannot live by the lie, sex is nothing or sex is everything, because those lies run into each other and the result is a train wreck. I like what Paul Tripp says in one of his books, he says, our problem with sex doesn't begin with lust, with bad choices, or with sexual misbehavior. Our problem with sex begins when we forget that God must be at the center of this part of our lives as he must be with any other. So this man, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Reich, he tried to live with sexuality at the center of his life, and it led to complete destruction in his life and many other people's lives as well. Now, we might believe that the problem, our problem... It's just simply things like lust or bad choices or misbehavior. But he says, Paul Tripp says here, that that those things aren't our biggest problem. It's replacing God at the center. And we're most prone to do this, I think, in the area of sexuality. So to give a quick recap, we have these God-given longings. We have a desire for intimacy, a desire for covenant. But those longings set us up to believe some lies, that sex is nothing, that sex is everything. That's why we have to understand sex in the proper light. That sex is a sign. It's meant to point to something else beyond itself. So, if you understand sexuality in light of the gospel, sex becomes a sign that points to something greater than itself. Trevin Wax, in one of his books, he says to treat sex as if it's nothing is to diminish what sex signifies. To treat sex as if it's everything is to confuse sex with the transcendent reality that it points to. And I think our culture makes both mistakes. And I think we as Christians can fall into the same trap of the culture. We can make both mistakes as well. So we don't diminish it and say it's nothing. But we also don't hold it up as God and worship it and say it's everything. So if marriage gives us a picture of God's relationship to his people, then sex tells us something of that relationship as well. You see, with the nation of Israel, God God told Israel there'd be blessing within a covenant relationship with them. So for us, if if sex is a gift from God, a blessing from God, and reserved for the covenant of marriage, because, you see, God is a covenant God. He's always trying to communicate something about himself when he creates things and makes things and gives those things to us as a gift. So listen, God is not about minimizing joy. He's about maximizing joy in your life and in my life. You see, when our culture sees sex as nothing or sex as everything, it's the Christian response to hold sex up as a sign and say, no, it's not meant to be those things. It's meant to point to something beyond itself. And it tells us something good about who God is. And I think Christians need to do that and, and understand how that works. Trevor Wax goes on to say that the church must elevate sexuality when the world diminishes it. We must knock the legs out from under it when the world exalts it. And I know this is kind of like some high and lofty stuff, but I, I'm, I'm hoping you can understand how this does relate to your life as you live out this aspect of who God's created you to be. So, whenever, so what happens whenever we see sexuality in light of the gospel? Well, lives get redeemed. Lives get changed. God performs some miracles in people's lives when they understand God's intent and God's purpose. So I want to ask this question for you. What if I've really messed up? Especially in this area of my life I mean, this could be, this could be pornography, it could be you know sending pics, asking someone to send you pics, this could be having sex, it could be um, even, start, even starting to walk down that road, what if I've really messed up in this area of my life? Whenever I've talked to students about sin and we're having that conversation and... and uh, They've confessed something they're struggling with or dealing with. They might say, you know, yeah, I messed up. I'll try not to do that anymore. And they see see sin as just breaking a rule. And you see, sin is not just breaking a rule, but it's violating a relationship. Now, you might say, okay, Dave, um, you're not helping people who already struggle with shame and guilt. You know, what happens with most of us is we don't, we don't really want to feel the weight of our guilt, and so we try to downplay sin much of the time and just make it seem like no big deal. That's our way of dealing with the guilt. But listen, that isn't the answer, because we need to see sin, all sin, as a big deal. We're not trying to diminish the weight of sin this morning. But just seeing sin as a big deal is not the full story. I love what Sam Aubrey says here. He says, You see, the Christian message confronts us, so we don't downplay that. We don't, we don't say it's no big deal, that sin's no big deal. But the Christian, the Christian message also lifts us up. It says we've messed up more than we realize but that we can be given a fresh start and a new hope. Again, we think sometimes that the answer is to downplay sin, but that's not the answer. Or sometimes we go to the other extreme and we get get mired in shame and guilt and never understand the grace and the hope that's offered to us. We make both kinds of mistakes. So if you're asking the question, how do I properly repent of sin? I'm going to encourage you to Go to Psalm 51. We're going to look at a couple of verses here today. But I also want you to go home and meditate on this passage. Psalm 51. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Here's the background of Psalm 51, if you don't already know. King David was king of Israel. Many of you know the story. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba. He thought she was beautiful. He was the king. He was in charge. He sends for her and says, I want that woman, bring her to me. Now, she was married to somebody else, and she was married to a guy named Uriah, who was a, a Hittite, who was a man who was hired by Israel to go to battle with them. So she, he's stealing the wife of one of his soldiers who's supposed to be fighting for him. So they, go bring, they bring Bathsheba to, to uh, David, and then he commits adultery, And sends her away, and she returns a message saying, I'm pregnant. And obviously it can't be her husband because he's been away at battle. So then he brings Uriah. He calls Uriah back from battle and says, Uriah, come home and and, and go be with your wife, hoping that they'll be together and that they they, don't think it's his baby. And of course, Uriah, being this faithful, loyal soldier, instead of going home, he says, I can't go home when my men are off at battle. So he sleeps on the steps of the palace and says, I will not go home. And so David sends him back to battle. And then David devises a plan of of how he's going to have Uriah killed now because he knows this is not working out for him. So he has all the men go forward in a surge in a battle, and he's going to have the men retreat and leave Uriah standing by himself fighting And then he'll be killed in battle. And that's exactly what happens to Uriah. So now David has committed lust with the eyes. He's committed adultery with someone else's wife. And now he's committed the sin of murder. And now this prophet named Nathan comes to David and confronts him. And we don't really understand how long, how much time passes between the act and these these sins and him writing Psalm 51 but Psalm 51 is his repentance psalm. And I think it's a great psalm for us to look at whenever we're walking through sin or have come through a place of sin in our lives. And I encourage you, if you want to see what repentance should look like, read and meditate and pray the words of Psalm 51. And some of you may need to go home today and even look through the psalm and just read it and just begin praying these things to God as you think about your own struggles in these areas of your life. So here's some things we need to acknowledge that Psalm 51 talks about. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So David has committed adultery. He's committed murder. And now he's been confronted by the prophet Nathan. Now most of us, whenever we're exposed in our sin, we don't want to go to God. We don't want to be around church or those church people because that's the last place we want to go. But David knows something. He knows the best place to go when you failed God is to go to God himself. Back when I was at a different church, Many years ago, I was interning at a church, and there was this girl in our youth group named Adrian, and she was in 10th grade, and I'd known her for a few months. She was coming to our youth group for a while. I was the main leader of this one high school group, and she's coming for several months, and finally one day her mom calls me and says, "Adrian has something that she's afraid to tell you about. And she feels like the kids and that you will reject her and judge her if she tells you. And I was like, listen, I've heard lots of stories. I mean, what is it? And the mom says, well, she's currently a sophomore, of course, but when she was in eighth grade, she got pregnant, and she gave birth to twins. And so she has twins that are almost two years old at home with us. And y'all don't have any idea. And I said, yeah, you're right. We don't have any idea of that. I said, well, how can we, I said, listen, I understand how she would feel this way, but I said, let me think through some ways that we can, like, reach out to her and just try to help her understand the kind of place the church is supposed to be for someone like her and what she's walking through. And so one, I got the mom's permission. So one Wednesday night, we are having this discussion in someone's house, and she happened to not be there that night. I said, can I ask And she said that the the twins are almost two. Their birthday's coming up. So we decided as a group, I told the students, I said, listen, y'all know Adrienne. Y'all may not know the situation that she's in, but here's her situation. And I said, let's bless this girl with the grace of God somehow in her situation. And so the student's idea was to plan a birthday party for these two twins. And so the first time these students get to meet these two little boys was at a little birthday party that they planned for her and for those two boys. And so she shows up, and those students like showered her and showered these boys with God's grace and God's love. And it was powerful. And you could see this is not the reaction she thought she was going to get. Like she expected something completely different. And yet she saw the love these students had for her. And she stayed with us for a couple of years after that as she went through high school. And so listen, it it grieved me to think that a girl walking through this would see God or the church as the last place she wants to go. It needs to be the first place that somebody wants to go. You see, for David, he went to God first in in repentance. He saw God as the first place he needs to go. And we see that here in verses 1 and 2. Then in verse three, it says, "For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me." You see, David owns his sin here. You know we don't like doing that, do we? We live in an era of the the non-apology apology, the hashtag "sorry not sorry," right? We'll say things like, you know, if someone says, "I had issue with something you did or said," we'll say like, "Well, I'm sorry that you were offended." I'm sorry for how my words made you feel. That's not an apology. You're not putting it on them saying, well, it's your fault for being so sensitive. That's not an apology. Or we say things like this, you know, that's not who he is. Like, he has a good heart. David doesn't do that here. David fully owns his sin. And he apologizes. He owns his sin here. Reminded of the words in Matthew 15 where Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Where does he say those things come from? He says they come from the heart. You and I can't say there's this disconnect between the things that we do and our heart. We can't say, you know, I've got a good heart. I just messed up a little bit. No, we don't get to say that. We need to own it and say, look, no, this, I did that because that was in me. It was in here. And it came out in, in some horrific way. And I think David's doing that. He's saying, no, this is, this, is, this is who I am. This is what I did. And I can't separate those things. And Jesus talks about that here. These things come from the heart, and we do these things because this is who we are. This is in our heart, and we have to acknowledge these things, I think. But there's also some things for us to receive in Psalm 51. Here's a summary of verses 7 through 10. It says, cleanse me and wash me and let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity and create in me a pure heart, O God. So whenever we come to God, like He he forgives us, but He also changes us. You know, in this life, it's not that sin simply goes away or the temptations just go away. But whenever we ask Him to create in us a clean heart, we find that sin doesn't taste as good. We find that sin starts to lose its flavor. I will tell you from experience that when you begin walking in these ways, it's not that you totally don't feel tempted, but I do think there's a greater desire that takes root, it begins to flourish in your heart and soul, and it begins to take over. And God helps you, and you start to see those other desires, they're just not as powerful as they used to be. I mean, they're still there, but they're just not as overpowering as they used to be because sin has lost its flavor and it doesn't taste as good to you as it used to. Also, we see here that David asked for joy. Sam Albrey writes that sin attacks our joy and it makes life miserable, but spiritual joy also attacks our sin. So joy has a way of going on the offense and attacking our sin. We only finally stop enjoying a sin when we start to enjoy something else far more. So listen, simply trying to stop sinning or just changing your behavior is never gonna work in the long term. It's never gonna work in the long term. So listen, if if you've really messed up, which is probably all of us in some capacity, I want you to hear these words. We're gonna watch a video. This is a video of Matt Chandler about 10 years ago of him sharing a story of how the gospel relates to our sexuality. I want you to watch this clip.
1: But it it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I, won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back, where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman, because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, Occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things a friend of mine was playing at a church in the area and, and so I asked her to come he was a musician and, and so I said hey a good friend of mine's in a band he's playing um, wh- why, don't you come, wh- why don't you come hear him and, and so she agreed she thought it would be a concert I knew better it was shady it was excellent and um, she came with me and, and we listened to Robbie play and, and he was tremendous just a real anointed guy and then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a 1,000 of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, What are you doing? What are you doing? and and then as it wraps up he goes where's my where's my rose where 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 is it where's where's my rose and you know some kid came up the rose is just completely jacked up it's broken the things are off the petals are broken. and and he lifts it up and his big crescendo i mean his point is to hold up that rose and go now who would want this who would want this rose and i remember feeling anger like real legitimate i want to hurt him anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ won, you're not even teaching the basics of our faith! I
0: want to pray for you. God, um, I know there's all kinds of stories in this room, and you know those stories. I don't know those stories. But God, I pray this morning, especially, that you would reach our hearts, reach our souls with your gospel. Whether someone is a believer who's fallen into sin, whether someone is not yet a follower of yours, I pray that they would understand, they would know your gospel And they would cry out to you this morning in repentance and turn towards you. God, would you help us to see clearly, to not fall for the lies that our culture is feeding us right now. God, help us to see the truth of your gospel. And and God, how you've given us these good things that are meant to be a gift, but so often we worship the gift and forget who gave it to us. And God, I pray that you would do the work on our hearts that you need to do. God, help us to repent. Again, not minimizing sin, but maximizing your grace and mercy. Because we truly understand the gospel and what you have offered to us. You have offered us freedom, not slavery. God, help us to walk in that today and beyond. We pray this in your name. Amen.